Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. The information and opinions you hear on the Del Wamsley Radio Show are those of the host, Del Wamsley, his guests, and his callers, and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of this station, its affiliates, its management, or advertisers. The Del Wamsley Show is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult a professional regarding your personal investment needs. Nothing presented on the Del Wamsley Show constitutes an endorsement, recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or security. Portions of the show may be previously recorded. Welcome to the Dell Wamsley Radio Show. Listen and grow as Dell questions the status quo, encourages you to think differently, and empowers you to make a better life. Get ready as Dell challenges core beliefs, seeks the truth, and reveals the roadmap to the lifestyle you really want. And now your host, multi-millionaire, national award-winning investor, CEO and founder of Lifestyles Unlimited, Del Wamsley. Welcome to the Del Wamsley Radio Show, where the hype ends and the help begins. I'm your host, Del Wamsley, and as always, we're working on your financial freedom. Uh, today, someone sent me uh, an article about something, yeah, which I'll cover later in the show. But as I went to look up the article and do some research to be able to comment on it, I ran into a, a YouTube video about Warren Buffett. And quite honestly, I'm thinking, okay, I'm looking at all this other stuff about investing. This is the greatest investor of all time. Now, let me explain to you what that means. There are billionaires out there. There are people that have gone out and started companies and became billionaires. There are people who invested their money and made millions. But Warren Buffett is the only guy that's gone out there without owning and or managing a company, but just simply investing in the stock market, has become a billionaire. He's the only one like it. He's the only guy that's actually got rich by investing, not by owning a company. So I thought, there's got to be something this guy can teach us. I mean, this is the best of the best of the best there is. And so I sat and watched this video and took a few notes. And then I started trying to, as I listened to the video, think into what it can parallel off into what we do here at Lifestyles and at Real Estate Investing, see if there was anything that had any parallels to it, and sort of listen for that kind of a crossover message there. As I got into it, 
One of the interesting things in the beginning of the video, it said, if you would have invested $1,000 with Warren Buffett when he started Ber Berkshire Hathaway, sorry, I mispronounced it, today that $1,000 would be worth $30 million. Now, that's just mind-boggling. I mean, I can't even, I can't even conceive. You put $1,000 in, and now it's worth $30 million. Now, Warren Buffett's pretty old, so I don't know how long Berkshire Hathaway's been around. I should have looked that up. But whatever amount of time it is, I mean, boom. I mean, Warren Buffett's, let's say, maybe 70 or 80 years old. He went to college for 20 years. So that means 50 years maybe of investing, something like that, maybe more. But the bottom line, $1,000 into $30 million. And you say, like, wow, that's unbelievable. Just think of the people smart enough to get on his horse and stay on his horse over those long periods of time. That's pretty good. So I wanted to look deeper into what he had to say and what he thought was important. And he started the video off by talking about the issue that when he was a kid, he studied everything he could study about the stock market and said he read everything about market timing and read everything he could about market sectors. He read everything he could about diversification. I mean, what he basically comes up and says is that I read everything that everybody else in this world believes to be true, right? Believes to be true and got nothing from it. He says, I knew Everything. <laughs> he said, I had, re I had read every book in the Omaha library. That's where he's from. Every book in that library about investing and stocks. And yet at the end of that time, although he knew everything, he really still knew nothing. And then he got a hold of his mentor's book. And I forget what his mentor is name is. But it was the guy that was his college professor who he later went on to claim him as his mentor for life. And he read his book. And this guy's book gave him three or four pieces of wisdom that were the foundation of everything he ever believed after that. And so I thought we should take a look at these three or four pieces of wisdom. I actually wrote down, let me see what my notes have here. My notes have six different things that he pointed out although he states it was just three basic pieces of wisdom. So I'll cover the three basic pieces that he thinks were really the key to it all, and then I'll cover the other three things that he brought up he thought was important, maybe from his ideals and his experience through going through this all. And as we go into this, I want you to understand I'm doing this as a base. I mean, there's, this is way over my head, way over the average person's head, as in the fact that we'll never make billions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars. This is something that if you understand the basics and you understand the process, then you can take where you're at now and have massive rates of return, massive gains in rates of return. And so I'm going to try to do this justice and in no way, shape or form can I expand on the knowledge in any way, shape or form that Warren Buffett would have, but I would I would suggest that you go to YouTube and watch this video. And the reason for that is because he keeps it very simple. I mean, it's a very simple set of concepts that he explains.
So let's get into this. And the first one he brings up is the market isn't there to instruct you. And the point he makes is what the market really is, is some thousands of companies, whatever the number adds up to in all the different stock exchanges, that are businesses that actually produce a product or a service, sell that product or service to the, to the marketplace, and then are successful or non-successful. And the point he makes is, is that that's totally independent of what the stock market actually does. And he brings up the point that this gentleman that was his mentor, and I'll, I'll maybe go look it up here in a second when we go to break. Uh, I think it was Munger. Um, he says that maybe that was his partner. I'm not sure. I'll look it up for sure. But the bottom line, he said, this guy in his book says that the stock market was really, he called it, uncle market. And he said, uncle market was a drunken fool that had absolutely no idea how to invest in business, had no idea what businesses were actually worth or what they did. He was just a drunken gambling fool, and that was Uncle Market. And he pointed out that on any one day, Uncle Market could be worth tens, twenties, hundreds of percents higher than what the business was actually worth because drunken Uncle Market doesn't really know what the business is worth. And or in any day, it could be priced way less than what that particular company is actually worth. Because, again, drunken Uncle Market doesn't really know what that company's worth. The companies, on the other hand, on a day-to-day-to-day-to-day basis, are doing business. And the other thing I want to throw in here, which I think is really interesting is that these companies work on projections. They tell you what they think they're going to do as far as sales and profits for the next quarter or two, and then they try to live up to those. And Uncle Market, the drunken fool in between drinks, listens to these projections and makes decisions on what the company's worth. Well, my gosh, if they can do all that, then the company's got to be worth a lot more. And so the price and the market goes up. If they come in with a realistic projection that doesn't grow, they go, oh, my gosh, this company's not growing. This company's dying. And Uncle Market comes back and says they're not worth anything. Lowers the expectations and the value. So all companies out there trying to keep their stock of value because the owners own the stock and that's their value, that's their asset, they're constantly trying to create projections that sound good, and then they're trying to live up to those projections. And as those projections are not lived up to, then the market, Uncle Market, drunken Uncle Market, decides, wow, these guys are liars. They let us down. They're not, this is not being operated by solid management. And so I think we need to get out of this. Let's sell this stuff off. And so the point he's making is that any one point in time, market valuation has no real value. We'll be right back with the Dell Wamsley Radio Show. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. 
You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Retiring America, one person at a time. This is the Dell Wamsley Radio Show. Now, more unconventional wisdom from your host, Dell Wamsley. Welcome back to Del Wamsley Radio Show. Today we're talking about Warren Buffett. And uh, in the previous segment when I was talking about Warren Buffett's mentor, his name was actually Benjamin Graham. And the book that he wrote that Warren Buffett uh, took most of his ideas from was called The Intelligent Investor. The book was basically about the difference between someone being an actual intellectually based investor compared to an emotionally based uh, gambler, uh, speculator, speculating on the market. So as we get back to where I was at when we took a break here, uh, I was at the point where I was saying Warren Buffett came to conclusion number one was the market value of the stock market value of a company was not representative of the actual value of the company. And he said one of the first things he learned to do was before he would ever go look at whatever a value of a company was in the stock market, he would go analyze the company. Now in our world, that's an interesting thing because we get, you know, we get a broker's opinion thing comes out. And the broker's opinion is basically a mock-up of their representation of what the property could be if you did a bunch of changes. That's something worth looking at and thinking about. Hey, here's where I could go to. But what you really need to do is look at what it was before. And when you look at the history and the numbers and so forth, you, they'll go, well, though that's last year. That means nothing's what they're going to tell you. Brokers are going to tell you that because they're trying to sell you something, right? And the reality is that those numbers are what it really is. And if you're buying it for what it really is, then you need to look at those numbers. The bank wants to see those numbers. Uh, but the bank wants to make a loan so bad these days, they'll actually look at your projections and what they call pro formas. To me... This is very important. When I first started build, real, buying real estate, I looked at what they really were worth. Not that I looked at that before I looked at their price. I looked at the price, but then I would dig in uh, to the due diligence information that was given to me and figure out what the thing was really worth to me. Then I would make my final offer based on what it was worth to me, what they had done, what they're doing right now, and what I thought I could do with it would all blend into what I thought it was worth paying for it. Part of the purchase price is what it's already done. Part of the purchase price, you know, well, part of the purchase price is what it's doing right now. Probably a better way to look at it. And part of the purchase price is some speculation on what it might do better in the future. 
to give it, you know, that little oomph in what you're willing to pay, to pay a little bit more than what it's actually worth based on what it's doing. That's the solid way to look at buying a piece of real estate. Unfortunately for us in this day and age, it doesn't work that way anymore, and it should. It doesn't, and it should still work that way, but it doesn't because now there's so much money chasing deals that people are just blindly looking at whatever the seller says they want and saying, yes, I'll do it, blindly doing that. And I'm seeing it all around me. I'm seeing it outside people, outside of lifestyles doing it, but I see it in, inside lifestyles. I see people within our group that are just blindly saying yes to whatever price is thrown out there on the table. Because why? Because they want to buy something. There's pent-up buying desire, pent-up buying need in some cases, where there's money sitting there needing to be invested and has no place to go. And so people are not looking. And that's why Buffett can take $1,000 and turn it into $30 million because he never did that. He always looked at the underlying business as a business in whole and what it was actually worth and what he was willing to pay for it. Okay, so he said the market is not your friend. It's just there telling you what it thinks is going on, but it has really no clairvoyance into the value of a piece of real estate. The second point he goes on to make out of uh, Graham's book, The Intelligent Investor, is that the market has massive, massive highs and Minimal, minimal lows. In other words, what happens is companies, when they when the stock market starts to devalue them, still have the value of the company to kind of hold the value together. So if the company's making money and your stock market sells it way too cheap, people are making a killing off the distributions and the ownership of the company. Remember, when you own stock, you own some portion. Take whatever that company's worth, divide it by a million shares, and you bought a thousand of them, you own one thousandth of a million. And that's your ownership of that company. So if that company's doing well or doing okay, and they're saying it's worth nothing, then you can buy in to something doing well for very little. But typically, the downside, according to Warren Buffett, the downside doesn't go as low as the upside because the upside is the euphoria of the drunken sailor called the market. Uncle Markin, Uncle Market, the drunken sailor, as he calls him, gets all kinds of euphoric about stuff, gets excited, gets emotional because it's something for nothing. It's like gambling. You see people gamble their life away because of something for nothing, instantaneous gratification of a big hit. And he says people always believe there's that next big win. People are hesitant to believe that there's that next low. And the reason for that is because the lows are never as low as the highs. And he said, so because this is true, there are lows and there are highs, right? Because there are lows and there are highs, all you have to do to be successful at his level, he says, is to simply wait, analyze, wait, analyze, wait, analyze, wait, and wait for the moment the market decides to undervalue a company, a business, a piece of real estate. And when the market decides to undervalue those, that's when you make a move. Now, 
the undervaluing doesn't happen in real estate like all the time, like all the way crash towards 50 cents on the dollars or 25 cents on the dollar. It may be a piece of real estate, for example, and here's a very common example. Someone is a self-owner. They've owned it for a long time. The market has gone beyond them. The values have gone up around them. But the guy that owns it's an old dude, and he really doesn't care what the market's doing. He really hasn't been paying attention. He dies. He gives it to somebody in his family. That family member has no idea what the market is or really how any of this works and has no real true value for that. You get in there in that situation and make them an offer that sounds good monetarily. They think they're going to make some money, and they're going to be willing to let go of the thing and maybe let go of it far below what it's actually worth. Now, even further below what a hypermarket might sell it for, but I'm just talking about even without the hypermarket, uh, they might sell it below what it's actually worth. Now, with a hypermarket, and this is an interesting point, if everything's in hypermarket mode and you can buy it for just what it's actually worth, well, then you stole it because now you're buying it below what the market would try to sell it to the next guy for. And when you can pull that off, you've made a great purchase. And that's the kind of stuff you should be looking for now. Take a short break. Be right back with the Dell Wamsley Radio Show. You're hearing the Dell Wamsley Radio Show. Want more life-changing knowledge? Access our podcast and listen on demand at lifestylesunlimited.com under the radio tab. Now your host, Dell Wamsley. Welcome back to the Dell Wamsley Radio Show. Today we're talking about Warren Buffett and his investment theories. And as we went to break, we're talking about the fact that Warren Buffett says that uh, the market place is wrong most of the time. It's uh, too low a small part of the time. It's way too high a lot of the time. And that your goal is to understand what the true value of is the of the product, the business below the price that's being marketed on the stock market or in real estate on the in the listing broker and see what it's truly worth and wait for that time in which you can buy it for at least what it's worth. And like I made the point when we went to break, in this marketplace where there's hyperinflation and people bidding everything up way too high for what they're really worth, if you just buy it for what it's worth, you stole the deal, right? In regular times where you would normally just buy it for what it's worth, buying it below market is the steal, right? So in those cases, you know, we're looking to make the correct purchase. Buffett goes on and makes this point. He said, it would be great if everybody only got a punch card with 20 purchases they could make in their life. And he thinks that it's important that you only make good purchases and that you stick with those purchases. So I go back and I look up uh, Benjamin Graham to see what his net worth was. His net worth was $3 million. Now, he went for years making a 15% return per year for decades, it says here. Indeed, on average, he earned around 15% a year for four decades. So even if he starts with a small sum, he should have been built himself a considerable fortune by the end of his career. Yet, he only left $3 million behind. So what is it that he did differently than Buffett did? And what Buffett did, which is completely different, is that Buffett bought companies and kept them. 
And so he bought Coca-Cola. He kept it. He bought the the candy company, whatever it was called. I forgot it. Um, C's Company, C's Chocolates. He kept that. He bought all these different companies, and he kept them. And those companies that were good companies grew radically over the years. And he kept adding to his portfolio and making it larger. So it kept growing and growing and growing and growing faster and faster and faster. Whereas what Graham was doing is he was trading. Buy, sell, buy and sell, buy and sell. And he was good at it. He he maintained a rate of return of around 15% for four decades, it says here in the article. But my gosh, that's nowhere near what Buffett's done. So I think back now and I think of, gosh, of all the properties I've owned in my life, if I would have kept the ones that were good, they just kept going up and going up and going up and going up and going up. Which brings us to the next point he makes, which is really only his third point. I added this other point in there in between, but this is his third point. His third point is when you go to buy one of these companies, you need to buy one you believe will go up in value forever. And he calls it in this situation of buying something with a competitive advantage. He believes that when you go to buy these companies, it's going to last forever that you buy something with a competitive edge, something that gives it an edge over everybody else. So somebody else, because he says business is competition, that there's, there's absolutely and should be the belief that the second you figure out how to do something well, somebody's going to come in and try to take it away from you. You need a competitive edge. And he says, now, sometimes your competitive edge is simply you're the best. And he talks about Tyson knocking people out one after the other, after the other, after the other. He says, that's competitive edge. As long as you can keep that competitive edge, you're going to stay ahead. But obviously, it doesn't last that way. He talks about other companies like Coca-Cola. The competitive edge is everybody knows Coca-Cola. All over the world, everybody knows Coca-Cola. He goes, nobody knows RC Cola. R.C. Cola's out there. He said you could spend a billion dollars on advertising and nobody would care about R.C. Cola. But if there's ever a time and a place you want to be and want to have fun, and he talks about where they advertise Coca-Cola, every sporting event, everything that's fun, anything and everything that has to do with music and excitement and sports, that's where they advertise Coca-Cola. So what did your brain do? It associates Coca-Cola with fun, with excitement, with having a good time. So that's a competitive edge you can't break. It would take years and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of advertising dollars to break through that competitive edge. So Coca-Cola is always going to have that edge, is the bottom line, right? So he believes that's very, very important. Now, he also believes something else, and that is that there should be a margin of safety tells this story, I've heard him say it in two or three different seminars given, but he always talks about, if you come up to a bridge that says, limit 10,000 pounds, and your truck weighs 9,900 pounds, you shouldn't go across that bridge. So sure, it says 10,000 pounds, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be able to sustain 10,000 pounds. And so he's always looking for a margin of safety in everything he does. 
Now, he doesn't really go into depth as to how he gets to that margin of safety other than buying products that can't be, again, beaten. Uh, again, having that competitive edge, right? So I was thinking about this. How do you not get beaten in things? I know at Lifestyles, the way I keep from getting beaten as far as a company goes is that we went from Houston to Dallas to San Antonio to Austin to Phoenix to um, Atlanta to Hawaii to Florida to Indiana to North Carolina, South Carolina. We just keep growing. And every time somebody thinks, hey, I'm going to copy Lifestyles and stick me a store somewhere and try to act like and do what Dell does, we're in their city. We're in five more cities, and they can't keep up. So their product is always going to be limited and or a portion or a function of what we offer. And so we have a competitive edge, and we keep that competitive edge by continuing to grow, continuing to invent new product for people to use and to have to make it easier. It's like I came up with the idea of owning real estate companies. Everywhere we have people, we have real estate companies, so we can buy you real estate. You don't have to go out and find somebody that thinks that buying investment real estate isn't crazy. Most real estate agents don't believe investing in real estate is a good idea. They think you buy it and sell it for your personal residence. If you go, I need you to find me a property that makes money, they'll go, that stuff doesn't exist. Where did you get that idea? They don't believe it does. So if I put a real estate company that specializes in investment real estate in your city, you've now got a place to go. My product now makes sense. Somebody else comes in and says, hey, you should go out there and try to find these incredible deals. They go, how? There's nobody out there will do it. My agents don't do it. And so we keep a competitive edge. I'm now opening, uh, we're looking at opening a mortgage company that does creative financing. There's lots of mortgage companies out there, but how many of them do creative financing? And so we want to be able to bring that to different states. We've got it here in Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, Texas. We've got, we got people to do it here, but we need places all across the country, right? So that just gives us more of a competitive edge for what we do because now our customers can get what they need, the products they need to align with what we do. So, again, those are the competitive edges that you think about. In real estate, you think, what are the competitive edges? Well, the one that comes to my mind is the one we talk about all the time. What are the three most important things in real estate? Location, 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 right? If you've got a location, they can't build anything else into that location. You've got it. That's it. There's no more real estate being built. And if you control and dominate a certain portion of town, that's great, especially if you own in that part of town at a lower price. In other words, you can't go back and build Class C real estate. You can build Class A real estate, and if you try real, real hard, you can build some Class B real estate if you can buy the land cheap enough, which is highly unlikely. But if you already own something that you've owned there, for 10, 20 years in a part of town that's just blown up. and You've got land rights. You've got real estate rights that can't be copied. You have right there a competitive edge that cannot be replicated. And in those kinds of situations, you're going to make a killing. Pretty much every time you're going to make a killing from something like that. Because that's what it comes down to. Having the best product at the best price that can't be replicated. That's business war, my friends. Business war 101, Warren Buffett style. Have a competitive advantage.
advantage. We'll be right back with the Dell Wamsley Radio Show. Welcome back to the Dell Wamsley Radio Show, where the hype ends and the help begins. Got a question? Call 855-497-4DELL. That's 855-497-4335. Or email Dell at askdell at l-u-i-n-c dot com. Welcome back to the Dell Wamsley Radio Show. Today we've been talking about Warren Buffett and his basic three rules uh, that he came up with after reading a book, The Intelligent Investor, by his mentor, which name was Benjamin Graham. And um, we covered those. Now we're sitting here with an article, actually not an article, an email from an individual who is asking me some questions that I think are rather interesting, the applied to and or aligned with the discussion we've already had today. He first of all starts this email and says it's four questions. The first one is, I'd like to introduce you to the concept of the 37% rule. In a nutshell, this is a mathematical formula for avoiding the worst type A rash impulsive decisions and type B uh, paralysis analysis decisions. The theory is that, for example, you plan to interview 11 people for a job the first 37% of the interviews are just you gathering information. In this case, it would be the first four of 11. Let's say then that the second guy is the best of the lot. You do not back, go back and hire him. Rather, you continue interviewing until you find the first person who is better than the candidate, and then you hire that person. Similarly, if you hope to buy a single family in the next 30 days, you spend the first 11 days seeing houses and then buy the next house you see. That is better than all the houses you saw in the first 11 days. What is your take on this? Um, I read the whole article, and I got the mathematical understanding of what they're trying to say. Is that this, isn't trying, this process isn't trying to make the correct decision, the best decision. It's just trying to avoid the worst decision. I don't like the theory. Uh, to be honest with you, and uh, I don't like it because if you're hiring 11 people, the very first person you interview might be the best person. So if you can take this thing seriously, it goes on in, the, in that article to say that really maybe you look at the time allotted, and if you've got 10 hours to do this, you spend 37% of your time or 3.7 hours studying what would be important about a new candidate, and then the rest of the time, the 63% or whatever's left over, you would use to interview. Because the very first person you interview might be the very best person. So interviewing, same thing with looking at a rent house or looking for an investment. You might take 37% of the time you intend before you buy something. I'm going to take at least one year to get into something. Um, and you might take three months of going to a class like ours and studying and understanding what you're trying to find, understanding how it works and how you're going to operate and what's really important, and then take the other six, 63% or whatever's left over and um, use that time to look at opportunities of investments. But the theory of doing whatever it is you're doing for 37% of the time and then stopping and then just taking the very next thing that beats anything that the first one-third did, in my mind, is a stupid idea, completely stupid idea. 
He goes on and says, second, I have a chance to buy a five-door apartment building. The asking price is 54900 I have no clue how to do due diligence on the property like this. Could you recommend a book or an article? First of all, five units for $54,900 is an incredibly, incredibly low price to where I wonder what the heck it is. He says five-door apartment building. It might be a five-room flop house where each room is a one-bedroom flop house. I can't see anything costing fifty-four nine. He doesn't say where he's from, so I have no idea how to even begin to theorize that something could be fifty-four nine. I'd like more information on that. Secondly, to believe that you can learn how to do what I do and what my members do after tens of hours of training, after hundreds and hundreds and thousands of hours of experience, you can read a book. That's just bad news. That's bad thought process, buddy. There's no way that you could read a book to learn how to do due diligence. You need to come to the classes. You need to study. You need mentors to help you work through it. You can go try it, but you're not going to be able to learn it by reading a book. Third, my wife and I set a goal to save money. In January, we saved 20% of our income. And in February, we saved 21%. And in March, we saved 22%. We now have 64.8. So let's just take that apart. That's about $2,000 a month, 2100 And that's 20% of some number. So they must be making about $8,000 a month is what that looks like. But I also have credit card debt of nine uh, at 9.24% interest. Part of me thinks it might be better to pay off the credit card I owe of 99.32. It didn't bother me before, but now that the Fed is raising the rates, I'm reconsidering my position. What is your opinion? Well, you've got $6,400, which is nothing. If that's all the money you have, I wouldn't rush out to pay off those credit cards because you'll have no money at all. Now, I don't know if you have other money that's your savings money, and this is just the stuff you're saving to invest, but quite honestly, 9.24% is about what you're going to earn on something you go and invest in on a cash flow basis. So you really don't lose anything if you pay off the debt. You're probably better off. On the other hand, though, you have no capital gains. There's no way for you to make that big bump in value that's going to get you out of the position you're in. And the position I say you're in is you have $6,400. And my friend, $6,400 is not a lot of money. I don't mean that to be insulting in any way. It's just not. I mean, that's less what most people would have in their rainy day fund. So uh, I don't see any problem with you paying off the debt. But the problem is if you pay off the debt, you're just going to put it right back on there again. That's what most people do. They pay those cards off and they put it right back on there. So now the fact that the interest rates are going up, credit card debt doesn't really bother me because there's going to be usury that's not going to allow them to go above a certain amount. Or even if it does, it's such an inconsequential amount of money. It's really not going to matter. But not having any cash to invest, that is important. Well, my friends, hope this helped you out today. Get you thinking about what you're doing. And remember, 1,000 became 30 million. There is a better way. Have a great day. And remember, it's not the money. It's the lifestyle. See you tomorrow. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one. They're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. 
Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.